The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. We're going to take a little time travel together. We're going to go back in time to January 17th, 1994 at 4.31 a.m. Your house, what was happening there? Mother Earth sucker punched Los Angeles. About 11 miles underground in the San Fernando Valley near Northridge, California, an earthquake popped. Magnitude 6.7 in, depending on who you talk to, between 10 and 20 seconds, that energy from that slip of the faults so deep in the earth, killed 60 people, injured 5,000, knocked out three of the busiest freeways in the United States, and depending on how you count it, caused $50 billion damage. At that time, the costliest natural disaster in the history of the United States. My wife and I were in bed and suddenly found ourselves being hurled up and down as the energy of that quake almost instantaneously traveled the 15 miles from the epicenter out in the valley to Santa Monica, California, where we lived at that time. I'm Robert Lee Holtz. I'm a science writer for the Wall Street Journal. So once I realized that the quake had stopped, uh, no broken bones, baby good, wife good, dog good, uh, gas is off, uh, although you could smell a lot of gas. The uh, thing for me to do was to immediately abandon my wife, my baby, and my dog, and my uh, community, and of course, uh, find my way to our newsroom. I'm Lance Balance, the time is 4.43 in Southern California. And it was interesting, the highways had been knocked out. Overpasses had just simply collapsed in the shaking. So trying to figure out how to get downtown was tricky. A local radio played a huge role in Northridge as a kind of voice of sharing information about what had been damaged and what to avoid. So I was kind of navigating by FM radio. Another one right now. Oh, yeah, another aftershock. A little one. Little, thank goodness. Yeah. All right, like I said, we'll let you know what's going on here on L.A.'s coast, Your instinct as a journalist anyways, when in doubt, head to the newsroom. So there we all are. And, and I'm feeling quite proud of myself for having fought my way downtown. I'm a real, you know, newspaper warrior. And only later did I understand that I had turned my back on one of the hardest hit communities. We think of, of an earthquake as simply consisting of that violent moment when the rocks actually slip. But of course, there's a physics to it. It's like striking a gong. Like you strike a portion of the planet with a really big stick and it resonates. It sends off seismic waves in three dimensions. And depending on what the rocks are, depending on how soft the sands are, you get all kinds of very local and surprising and damaging effects. The basin of Los Angeles was literally like a bell that uh, uh, shaped and focused 
these reverberating seismic waves in unexpected ways. After the immediate disaster area in the San Fernando Valley itself, one of the hardest hit places from the Northridge quake was Santa Monica. And if I had only turned around as I was running out of the house and getting into the car, I'd have noticed like all of these uh, chimneys had collapsed, anything made out of brick had come down. The apartment buildings, most of them were damaged severely in some way or other. Literally, uh, I lived on kind of the far eastern edge of the city and just literally did not turn around. You have to remember, at this time, cell phones are still pretty unusual. No broadband internet. No special anti-earthquake gas valves. Northridge was a real educational moment in a lot of ways for the California earthquake experience. From the Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Kateri Yoakum. The Northridge earthquake that shook Los Angeles and our reporter Lee Holtz 25 years ago was one of the deadliest and most costly in recent U.S. history. And as Lee said, it came without warning. No sirens, no public alerts on the radio, just shaking. A similar earthquake had hit Mexico almost a decade earlier. On September 19, 1985, a tremor struck in the early morning hours. It leveled large swaths of Mexico City and killed more than 6,000 people. That earthquake and the deadly aftermath triggered a massive response. The Mexican government launched the world's first public earthquake early warning system. For years, it was a model for other countries, including the U.S. But the advent of big data and smartphones has changed how we collect, process, and distribute information. For essential public information like this, it's brought up new questions. How do you build an early warning system for a disaster scientists say they can't predict? And who should be entrusted to manage them? And with what technologies? Our reporters, Daniela Hernandez and Robbie Whalen, went looking for answers, starting in Mexico City. People have been studying earthquakes in Mexico for centuries. The Aztecs even had their own symbol for them. This is the symbol of earthquake. This is what, uh, what is called Olin, O-L-L-I-N, and it means motion. And in their cosmogony, the Mexica cultures, of which the Aztecs were part of, believed that we were in the fifth world. Previous worlds had been destroyed by fire, by water, by several other things. So we're in the era of earthquakes, which I was saying is, a, is an ominous, is an ominous prediction for those of us who live in Mexico City. That's Gerardo Suarez, a seismologist at the Institute for Geophysics at Mexico City's National Autonomous University. The shelves in his office are filled with maps and books about earthquakes and volcanoes. The book he's showing us has colorful ancient drawings that tell stories about earthquakes that happened hundreds of years ago, before the dawn of modern seismology. Actually, do you want to say the, the title of the book? It's Los Sismos en la Historia de México, Earthquakes in the History of Mexico. Mexico is one of the most active regions in the world in terms of earthquakes. These Aztec paintings are part art and part data. They are early recordings of where and when tremors hit. And scientists are mining these paintings for information to help them understand where earthquakes might happen in the future. This tells a more, a, a, a more interesting story that when the earthquake occurred, there was also a, apparently a volcanic eruption and there was a comet that was seen on the sky. But 
Then below, as in all cases, we have the all in the X-shaped uh, symbol meaning earthquake, but this time it's of a different color and there are two layers representing the earth. And there has been a lot of speculation of what that means, if it is the size, the type of earthquake or whatever, but we really do not know. Suarez says he put the book together after the 1985 earthquake. It was an attempt to understand the past through data. That infamous tremor also signaled a parallel shift for science. The earthquake of 19 September of 1985 was a, a, a breaking point, it was truly a, a turning point in, in seismological and engineering research in Mexico. That day, Suarez was getting ready to take his young son to daycare. He had just come back to Mexico after working in New York. I felt the earthquake and I, I, it was surprising because it was very long. My wife looked at me and says, this, this is a major earthquake. I said, no, but, you know, we've lived in the U.S. for too long, maybe. You know, we're not used to earthquakes anymore. After the shaking was over, he drove to a meeting. He didn't see much damage on the way. Then someone turned on the TV. It's the broadcasting of the damage in Mexico. And of course, there was a deadening silence. And they said, okay, the meeting's over, I think. And we, and we my, my colleague and I, said, you know, I think it's time for us to go to the Institute and figure out, figure out what happened. That earthquake measured 8.0. The next day, a major aftershock hit, 7.5. Together, they leveled the city. At least 6,000 people were killed. It was a wake-up call for scientists like Suarez. They knew that just measuring the earthquake strength after the fact wasn't enough anymore. They wanted to use data, sensors, and algorithms to let people know in real time that it was happening. That moves many people to think, well, maybe. What if we could install a series of instruments that could detect the earthquake, classify it to see if it was a large earthquake that deserves to be warned, and then issue a warning in Mexico City? The city's location makes it particularly well-suited for an earthquake early warning system. Many of the major earthquakes that hit the Mexican capital come from hundreds of miles to the southwest, where the Cocos and North American tectonic plates jam up against each other. It takes about a minute, or a minute and a half, for the seismic waves to reach the city. That's what gives the people a window of time to allow for an early warning. So the thinking was, and it was the thinking of the time, that is the region that is most dangerous. So we should instrument that region. And the first, I think it were 11, if I'm not mistaken, 10 or 11 sensing instruments on the coast. Today, there are 97 motion sensors, mostly along Mexico's Pacific coast, from the state of Jalisco in the north to Oaxaca in the south. Some are also located inland, south of Mexico City. And within six years, the system, known as SASMEX, was measuring seismic activity and issuing alerts. That makes Mexico's the oldest earthquake early warning system in the world. Japan and Taiwan now operate similar systems. But when it began in 1991, SASMEX was revolutionary. Since then, the system has detected thousands of earthquakes and issued more than 100 alerts. Currently, only earthquakes larger than 5.5 get one. The whole thing is automated to avoid human error. But even without human error, there can be issues. Warning systems don't work as well when earthquakes are close, like the earthquake that hit on September 19, 2017. A 7.1 magnitude earthquake. It hit in the early afternoon, exactly 32 years to the day after the infamous 1985 quake. The epicenter was roughly 60 miles south of Mexico City. The automated system at Ceres is supposed to send out warnings to roughly 12,000 speakers mounted on telephone poles across Mexico City. 
The system is also supposed to alert residents of earthquakes as strong as this one through radio and TV. But because the epicenter was so close to the capital, there wasn't enough time. The shaking and the alerts basically came at the same time. And even when there is enough time, there aren't loudspeakers everywhere, and some of them don't work. I've slept through several earthquakes in Mexico City, and even been surprised by sudden shaking while I was wide awake, because I didn't hear anything. Gerardo Suarez admits that the system has its blind spots. There have been problems with the loudspeakers. People have reported that in their neighborhood it doesn't work. And now the government, the current government, has promised that it would review the operation and, of all of these loudspeakers. In recent years, the system has suffered from a lack of investment. Few new sensors have been installed. SASMEX officials say the plan is to increase the number of loudspeakers posted around the city from 12,000 to 18,000 over the next few years. But this year, the Mexico City government only budgeted about half of what SASMEX requested. The benefits of the public system are clear. It's free and available to everybody. That means, with enough warning, residents can exit buildings that may be prone to collapse, potentially saving lives. But some people don't want to rely entirely on the government anymore. There's a cottage industry of small tech startups who are launching competing early warning systems. They say they have more sensors so they can better predict which neighborhoods and which types of buildings will suffer the most damage. One of the startups is called Grio. Andres Mera is the founder. We create alarms and sensors, and so we detect earthquakes. And then when we know there's an earthquake happening, we will send an alarm to people who are in the path of that earthquake. Which is basically what the government is already doing. But Meira says that Grillo is going for the more is more approach. Instead of just 100 sensors mostly near the fault line, the company wants to put sensors everywhere, in buildings throughout Mexico City. And they serve a double function. So I'm holding here uh, this new device, which is two things. It's a sensor and it's an alarm. Grillo's earthquake alarm costs about $50. It's a small, simple, cube-shaped device with an LCD screen that you attach to your wall and connect to your Wi-Fi network. It kind of looks like one of those boxy, old-school webcams that you used to clip to the top of your computer monitor. And what it does is it has a screen and a couple of buttons. And on the screen, when you start it up, just like any smart device you might have in your home, it uh, connects to your Wi-Fi, and it's surprisingly loud, uh, which I can show you in a moment. It knows exactly where you are, and that's really helpful because what we do is the second we send our device a message saying there's an earthquake in Acapulco of whatever intensity we've determined, this device then quickly works out what it's going to feel like when it gets here. Grillo has installed dozens of its own sensors on Mexico's Pacific coast. Those sensors detect shaking, then quickly analyze the data to determine how strongly the quake will be felt in Mexico City. All the data crunching happens via cloud computing, and the warnings, they're sent over Wi-Fi networks. Like we said, Grillo has installed hundreds of sensors and alarm systems in Mexico City. These sensors collect microdata on the effects of the shaking. That's supposed to help residents better protect themselves and could help insurers better assess the risk of earthquake damage. The more sensors, the more we understand earthquakes and their effects. Having a, something a little more finely tuned as to what it's going to be like for each individual user is definitely the future. Meta is obviously super excited about this. Grillo recently started selling its sensors to the public, and it wants to start licensing the data it collects to insurance companies. And it's not the only startup doing this. But the Mexican government is not excited. They say the startup's technology isn't reliable. And because the government doesn't have insight into the algorithms they're using to issue alerts, it says there could be false alerts. In August, the city government passed a resolution that CIRES would be the only organization permitted to issue early earthquake warnings. 
Seismologist Gerardo Suarez says they need to set up a system for companies to apply for licenses after their systems have been vetted. There are ones who are, I think, overselling the product and have had serious problems and with false alerts. And I think the advantage of CDIS is that being government-funded is totally transparent. Everything is published. I think the crux of the issue is how we bring them together so they serve the public. And that's where I think the government has to take more responsibility. And now it's very, very erratic the way this has operated. And I don't believe it's good for the public. So there's a battle going on in Mexico City between the old-school, hardwired, centralized network and a more decentralized, mobile approach between the public system and the private sphere. In California, that battle has already played out. And instead of a winner, a coalition has come out on top, a public-private partnership. In October, the state launched the first statewide earthquake early warning system in the United States. It's called ShakeAlert. It will eventually cover the entire West Coast. The U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS, funded the research and the development, but it's working with private companies and other organizations to get the alerts out. The system was inspired in part by Mexico's, as well as by similar systems in Taiwan, Japan, and Chile. To find out more, I visited the University of California, Berkeley. The campus sits on the Hayward Fault, one that scientists believe could cause a strong earthquake in the near future. It's where Angela Chung works. She's one of the seismologists who helped develop ShakeAlert. She says that just like the early warning system in Mexico, ShakeAlert relies on motion sensor stations. It already has about 1,000 set up, 10 times as many as in Mexico. The goal is to have roughly 1,600. The more sensors that we have in our network, the better job we can do of detecting the earthquakes. If an earthquake happens where there are no sensors, we can't tell you that it's happening. So the more stations that we have and the denser, the closer together those stations are, the better job we can do of detecting the earthquakes quickly and more accurately. And they're not just on the fault lines. Some of them are in vaults out in the middle of nowhere. Some of them are in more urban areas. It kind of depends on the environment. Obviously, we want to get as many sensors out as possible. Sometimes that means they're in the city, and sometimes that means they're out in the field somewhere. Part of the reason the ShakeAlert sensor density is so important is because the fault lines in California run right underneath major economic hubs, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Silicon Valley. We don't have that luxury of time. The bigger the web, the easier it will be to catch the earthquake. But the scientists also need to be able to determine very quickly which data is important and minimize the amount their algorithms need in order to be able to determine the size and location of an earthquake. So we might use only four seconds of data from one station and perhaps half a second of data from three other stations. That's a really tiny amount of data to be using. So keeping that in mind, I think it's pretty amazing that we do as good a job as we do of detecting these earthquakes and estimating the magnitude. So then how do you decide when to send an alert to people so that they can take action? So the great thing about our system is nobody has to decide anything. The algorithms are automatic. Nobody's sitting there with a button ready to push to say, hey, there's an earthquake. So basically, as soon as the algorithms detect the earthquake and think it's happening, we send out the alert. The data goes to a central repository that has several backups for redundancy in case one goes down. But alerts don't go out directly to the public from there. That's where the private sector comes in. The government works with companies and other institutions who notify residents through things like apps or push alerts that an earthquake is coming. I think that cell phones are one of the best ways of getting the alerts to people because people have their cell phones on them all the time now. Are there any technological roadblocks to getting the message on a cell phone to users quickly? 
if you have a lot of people that you're trying to send a message to in a very short amount of time from a single cell phone tower, it can kind of create a bit of a blockage there. That's something that we're working on. The algorithms aren't always perfect. This summer, the system missed two large earthquakes that happened in Ridgecrest, approximately 120 miles northeast of Los Angeles. Residents in L.A. using the Shake Alert L.A. app complained they didn't get a warning. The first one registered 6.4, but... The predicted shaking in L.A. wasn't high enough to surpass the intensity shaking threshold, and that's why no alert was sent for that one. With the second larger earthquake, the magnitude 7.1, our system did actually underestimate the magnitude a little bit. How do you fix that after the fact? What we found is that because these really large earthquakes, they take time to rupture. So when we only use four seconds of data for a magnitude 7 earthquake, the rupture is still going on, the earthquake is still happening. So we need to try and adjust our algorithms a little bit to try and make sure that we're really capturing the size of these really large earthquakes. There are a number of things that we found that happened during that earthquake that we didn't expect to happen. If it were to happen again today, the system would already perform better because of these things that we've learned from the Ridgecrest earthquake. But it's not just about individual people getting alerts in time. Cities and companies also need to respond to keep their residents and customers safe. That means public utilities and transportation systems also need these alerts. Our system sends out messages on these different channels, and it sends them out to anybody who's listening. And the idea is that people who are developing these apps and other systems can sign up through our our pilot system to receive the alerts, and then they can choose what to do with that system. So whether they are turning off gas lines, whether they're opening fire doors, or whether it's just creating alert for people on their cell phones, that's up to the third-party app or company developer. Can you describe the ways in which people are alerted currently? At the moment, some of the most significant ways that people are receiving alerts, whether they know it or not, are, for example, the BART system here, the Bay Area Rapid Transit. The trains will slow down automatically when they receive a shake alert. And so that's a really important thing for the Bay Area. We want to make sure that our trains aren't traveling at high speeds, even if the train isn't slowed down completely or stopped by the time the earthquake happens. In hospitals, early warnings can alert staff to stop surgery before shaking begins, helping to protect patients. And in factories, these systems can give workers time to secure potentially hazardous materials. But without sensors and the data they provide, these life- and cost-saving actions can't happen. Remember that book we talked about in the beginning? The one about how the Aztecs kept really detailed records of earthquakes and when they happened? While all these high-tech solutions are being developed to help people prepare for the big one in the future, Gerardo Suarez the seismologist in Mexico City has actually been looking back in time for ways to help keep people safe. And he's made an interesting discovery. In a paper he recently published, Suarez used hundreds of historical records from Mexican archives and even Aztec codices going back as far as 1568. And all the research suggests that there have been dozens of big earthquakes along a volcanic belt in central Mexico that researchers have thought for years was dormant. This is far from the fault lines in the Pacific where earthquakes usually originate. So here's this old-school guy using old-school methods, and his discovery unintentionally makes a powerful argument for the decentralized approach to detecting earthquakes, the way the startups want to do it in Mexico, and the way they're already doing it in California. That includes places that don't think of themselves as being earthquake-prone. WSJ science writer Lee Holtz again. I have to be honest and say, I worry much less about 
the big one in Southern California, which I know is just embedded in our consciousness as a culture. I worry much more about like, you know, being in a relatively moderate earthquake on the East Coast where you don't have the building codes and the geology is significantly different so that shocking seismic waves travel much, much further. Just a few years ago, there was a, a, by California standards, a moderate quake in Virginia. Ground shaking was felt all the way up to Boston. I mean, we're really not prepared. Same thing's true in the Midwest. One of the largest quakes of all time took place in New Madrid in the middle of the West. It was so big that it apparently made the Mississippi River run backwards. There's a lot to worry about if you've got a mind for it. <laughs> Early warning systems aren't just life-saving tools. They're also discovery platforms. Their sensors record valuable data that help researchers understand how faults work, where they are, and how they rupture to produce shaking. As with the other parts of our digital world, the future of earthquake detection is sensors everywhere, coupled with algorithms that can quickly make sense of it. But that, of course, brings up some pressing issues. Will earthquake warning systems fall prey to the same digital threats, like hacking, that public utilities have had to deal with? And as sensors move from out in the field and into our homes, how will privacy be protected? The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was reported by Daniela Hernandez, Robbie Whelan, and Emily Propolanus. Our special guest was Lee Holtz. Production assistance from Amanda Llewellyn and Jessica Fenton. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Thanks for listening. I'm Kateri Yoakum. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.